Welcome back to Search for DOS. When I started this podcast last March, I never could have imagined the nightmare that was brought on Israel, the Jewish people, the entire world just a few weeks ago. And before I introduce our guest, I want to acknowledge and honor all those in Israel who were taken from us on 10-7. The atrocities Hamas brought on Israel, the Jewish people, and many foreign nationals must be acknowledged for what they were, an insult to humanity. This attack designed to eliminate Israel and exterminate Jews must never be forgotten. The heart, honor, and spirit of all those taken from us on 10-7 will echo through the ages and they will strengthen the Jewish people. In this episode, we meet Abe Baker Butler. Given all the dark we've been confronted with over the past few weeks, I felt the need to introduce some light, hence this conversation with Abe. Abe is a junior at Yale, studying global affairs and global health, and he hails from Rybrook, New York, where he graduated as his high school's valedictorian. At Yale, he is a contributing reporter at the Yale Daily News, a Yale College Council Senator, President of the Alexander Hamilton Society, and on the Board of Trustees of Yale Slifka Center. Outside of Yale, Abe is the president of American Jewish Committee, AJC's Campus Global Board. And Abe, Abe represents light not only because he sits on a campus with the motto Lux et Veritas, aka Light and Truth, which is on Neil's coat of arms, both in Latin and Hebrew. And so he doesn't just represent light because of that. He represents it because he's a smart and wise voice advocating for Israel in a place that is increasingly hostile to that point of view. And that will come across in our discussion. In addition to other topics we cover, including what it was like on Yale's campus on 10-7, how the campus's reaction was fueled to quote a by a growing problem of students putting ideology and dogma over facts and moral clarity. What Abe thinks are the goals of the students who chant free Palestine, the reaction of Yale's leadership to 10-7, how Yale as an institution has taken an illiberal turn over the past decade and what we both see as the consequences. To quote Abe, free thought and dialogue still exist on Yale's campus. You just have to look for them. The Hillel security and the rationale some students assign to that, to the reason they have security, I found this story absolutely shocking. Abe's response to whether or not uh, he would feel comfortable wearing clothing with an Israeli flag on it on campus or in class, also concerning. Uh, the, how the term Zionist is interpreted on campus, Abe's Jewish identity and his journey thus far. And then finally, a Yale-inspired round of quick-fire questions. I really hope you enjoy this episode with Abe. It was a bright spot and, once again, a really challenging, dark period of time for 
Israel, the Jewish people in the entire world. Now, I give you a Baker Butler. Baker Butler, welcome to Search for Das. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Well, it's wonderful to have you on the on the podcast. And I I got to meet you through AJC. AJC brought together four current college students to talk about the environment on college campuses after 10-7. And I was blown away with all of the remarks of the uh, of you and your peers. And I wanted to bring you on, especially because of our shared connection to Yale. You are on campus right now, and I can only imagine what it's like being in New Haven at this point, moment in time. I know a lot of people who listen to Search for DOS are also incredibly curious and some concerned. So I'd love for you to just dive in into what, what was 10-7 like? Yeah, so... For me, Tyler, 10-7 started in the very early hours, Eastern time of 10-7, when I was writing an essay in the library. And then all of a sudden, my phone started buzzing nonstop with the texts of my my friends, largely American Jewish friends, but also Israeli friends, about the attacks that were happening, the terrorist attacks that were happening by Hamas in Israel. Um, and as I attempted to work on my essay, which was... A foolhardy attempt given the news that was coming in um it became very clear to me very fast that this was like nothing we or israel had had ever seen before and no sooner than the following day um information was being put out on yalies for palestine social media um circulating details for a celebration of the success of the resistance that would take place on October 9th. Uh, and that was happening as our community was grieving intensely over this huge tragedy, the greatest one to befall our people since the Holocaust. And that was a really tough dichotomy to deal with uh, for me and for our entire community at Yale as our grief was not only not recognized by many of our peers on campus, but also directly rejected with this celebration. How how did we get there? How did we get to a point where within 24 hours, they're actually celebrating the actions that generated your grief? Yeah, I think it's a question I've been thinking about a lot, Tyler. And I think the way we got here um, is unfortunately, I think especially in academic circles, there is a growing practice of putting ideology and dogma over facts and moral clarity. And that is really worrying to me. I mean, we've, we've seen that here on this issue, but I think it, it's a broader problem that has huge consequences for our society. I think a lot of the people um, at 
the Yalies for Palestine protest celebration and, and in that community see themselves as social justice warriors. And prior to 10-7, they had decided that you know the Palestinians were um, the people that they were going to support. And so rather than looking at this Hamas terrorist attack for what it was, instead, the reaction was, I have to make this fit into my ideology um, and my dogma. And I think that kind of gut instinct that that is what one should do rather than condemning a horrific tragedy and a crime against humanity uh, is really worrying to me. I'm sure there are people listening right now who are thinking, okay, I can understand that type of thinking happening at an institution that isn't as prestigious as Yale, but there's no way that that level of simplistic thinking, that type of ideological rapture is happening at Yale University, one of the greatest institutions, not only in this country, but across the world. How do you, in order to really drive that home for people who are thinking that through right now, can you can you come up with other examples that don't touch this specific um, conflict, this specific moment that you're talking about that really uh, exemplify that uh, issue that you just described? Yeah, let me think about that. And the other thing I, I just want to clarify here, Tyler, is I think I think it, it it varies based on who you talk to within this population I'm talking about, um, but I think some of them may have seen the atrocities and thought the pursuit of justice towards whatever goal um, that I want to pursue is is even more important. Like uh, th- this idea of you know pursuing justice, it's almost a Marxist vision in a way of pursuing justice at all costs. Um, I think that is what was kind of reigning here. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm giving some thought to what would be a, a good additional example. I mean, we, we've had s- some similar thinking around issues like um, de- defunding the police at Yale. Um, some issues around... Ah, I, I thought of a good example. So um, you may remember that last year there were some really horrible attacks on multiple Asian American community centers in California. I believe one was in um, Monterey Park or Sunset Park. Essentially, there were there were two massacres at Asian community centers back to back. And it, it was a tragedy. And it became clear very quickly that it was perpetrated by um, a perpetrator who himself was Asian which of course does not make the attack any less horrific. Uh, But many on campus, even after that fact was known, were extremely quick to call those attacks anti-Asian hate crimes. And and now they very very well, you know, could still be such, but um, there there was kind of an ignorance of the fact that these crimes were committed I mean, I guess, sorry, I guess t- to, to really drive it home here, it ended up becoming clear that those crimes were committed by that Asian perpetrator, not out of anti-Asian animus, but for other reasons. And there was this extremely quick drive, even after it was clear that the perpetrator likely had these other motives, to call it a manifestation of anti-Asian hate um, and uh, to disregard the facts. And now I don't think it's an exact parallel at all um, with what we saw with Hamas and Israel. 
but it's it's another indication of how people are very eager to put forward um, a policy statement or an ideological statement, um, even if the facts don't completely line up with what they want to put forward. Mm, yeah, they just slam in fact, or they slam in a situation into the narrative that they have, and will selectively uh, accept facts if they align with the narrative. Yes. Well, it's uh, clearly a reality of what it's like being on Yale's campus. What what was the reaction on ten seven by the administration? Help 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 us understand from the moment it happened to the to the you know first twenty four hours, and if there was any um, communication from administration, be it just a college dean or all the way up to president level, what did it look like? Yeah, so the reaction from the administration took a few days, but it's not because they um, they were they were thinking deeply about how they want to respond. They wanted to respond in a manner that was the correct manner. Um, and, and if you look at the statement that Yale's president, Peter Salve, released, it is by far the best statement on these attacks in and from anywhere in the Ivy League. So they took their time coming up with it. Um, but then they responded with a clear, powerful statement that condemned Hamas, um, that expressed uh, condolences over all civilian casualties, and that emphasized the need for uh, peaceful dialogue to move us forward on campus. So I think the administration actually responded quite well at Yale, and I give them a lot of kudos for that. And I also um, would say that I think deans and and heads of college and other administrators on the whole did try to respond as well as they could. I think a lot of them just tried to um, show students who were um, suffering and, and feeling the effects of this tragedy that they were there for them without um, without condemning Hamas because they didn't want to get into policy or politics or morality at all. Um, but on the whole, I think the response was pretty good. And then what did it look like on campus with regards to student, um, be it student protests, vigils, just activity across the board? What what did you interface with walking to and from your dorm, going to classes? Yeah, I mean, so there was this celebration of the resistance on Monday, October 9th. Um, and there was some uh, graffiti Free Palestine graffiti, et cetera, that was written all over campus. There were some chants of Hamas, Hamas, Hamas um, that were yelled as that graffiti was being written. Um, but other than that, very thankfully, um, the rest of the battles around this have been confined on Yale's campus to social media um, and the op-ed pages of our student paper. I'd love to see this actually, you know, turn into an opportunity for face-to-face -face dialogue and conversation that can actually move us forward. But thankfully, to my knowledge, there have been no uh, physical altercations or verbal abuse or, or anything to that effect in, in a public setting. Um, and, you know, on, on the Jewish community's part, there's been a lot of, I think, productive action, having community vigils, um, sharing the stories of those who were murdered and who have been kidnapped um and you know for example putting up posters around campus with the faces and stories of those who have been kidnapped 
uh, I think that is productive action. And, and I, I hope we'll see uh, a continued lack of any kind of violence or verbal abuse and um, the growth of conversations and dialogue. Help me on understand, help all of us understand what someone on campus who might be chanting um, from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free. What do you think they, they're asking for? What are they advocating for? What do they see as uh, success uh, based off of their view of the world? So truthfully, Tyler, I think a lot of them would just say, I want to see a free Palestine. I think a lot of people don't think about it that deeply and, and specifically past the chant. I think some would tell you, I want an end to the occupation. Um, but if you ask them how um, or when or what would the next day look like, I think you'd be hard pressed for an answer there. So, so I think for most people, you wouldn't get a clear answer. But from some people, you would hear, I want an end to the state of Israel. I want a, a one state solution, in quotation marks. Um, you'd hear from a few, I want a two state solution. Um, but I think most people, they just are doing the chant. They see Palestinians who they see as oppressed. Um, and they think, oh, why shouldn't an oppressed person be free? Free Palestine. What, what would happen if you went to uh, head of uh, your residential college or dean of Yale College? And you said something like the free Palestine in the first line in its mission of the free Palestine movement is oppose the existence of Israel. And from my standpoint, I view that as a, um, to use terminology that seems to be quite common on college campuses like Yale, that feels like micro assault. They're opposing the existence of the homeland of my people. And therefore, I you know, would like you to take action, uh, disciplinary action on that student who's chanting that. Because once again, I believe those words are rooted in my oppression. What do you think would be the reaction of a Yale administrator? And maybe um, just for the case of kind of hypothetical, maybe like uh, someone who's engaged in DEI on campus. Uh, I think the reaction would not be um, receptive, but I, I think, you know, Yale has a, a very clear policy on, on free speech known as the Woodward Report that came out in the 1970s. Um, and that policy actually gives quite a, a bit of leeway to free speech and, and a threat or hate speech has to be, I believe it's, it's personally targeted, directly targeted at a student um, for it to be you know, subject to disciplinary action it has to be like, kind of cross the line into harassment. So I think you would probably get an answer like that from, from the administrator. Um, I will say there are some issues in the, the DEI staff and community at Yale. Um, for example, last spring, belonging at Yale, which is Yale's flagship DEI initiative, um, initially was bringing in this horrendously anti-Semitic um, speaker belonging at Yale ended up pulling their endorsement of that event, which unfortunately did end up still happening last spring. Um, but the fact that they were, you know, initially ready to support such an event, I think is indicative of, of the problems there. Uh, it, it's fascinating to think about how, 
the D and DEI um, enterprise, uh, how Jewish people fit into that? Because you know, I've, I've anecdotally, I, I, I've heard uh, someone. This was actually in a company setting, saying, uh, you know, Jewish Jewish people are historically a privileged group, and then therefore uh, should not be kind of granted the uh, all the benefits that an oppressed group would get in a DEI uh, framework. And it seems to an earlier point you were making that the uh, students are trying to really jam situations into their set narratives. And it just, it just seems incredibly troubling. I, it is. I graduated uh, Yale School of Management 2016. And I had just gotten back from spending four years in the People's Republic of China. And the Halloween incident happened when I was on campus. Wow. And we had a all school meeting and uh, of the school management. And I remember at the end of the, what felt, I think it was over a two hour session, I made the comment that I think that we should all be very fortunate that we can have this conversation without the fear of the government or the university itself reprimanding us for sharing what's on our mind. So I just spent four years living in a nation with an authoritarian regime that would not afford us this. So we're all privileged to have that. And what I saw, what I've seen on campuses, it would, appears to be the it's a illiberal turn yeah. of, of, of something that was once a bastion of liberalism. And so things and something that liberalism does that's so wonderful is it takes things that are complex and it allows people to engage with it in a complex way. It doesn't reduce it down into a black and white situation. I think the person who has the best description of liberalism I've ever seen is Andrew Sullivan. And um, I'll uh, post it in the show notes. Um, but the uh, when I read that description of liberalism, I realized that it appears, at least during my time on campus, and it appears like it's only accelerated, that Yale has left that bastion of upholding liberalism um, and traded in for illiberalism. And that, and that seems scary. And it feels like it's making it very challenging for someone like you to navigate what is an incredibly difficult situation in Israel because these black and white narratives are just forced upon students. So that's a long wind up to a question for you, which is how, um, what's, what are the days like going forward for you? What do you envision your, um, your, your um, experience will be like defending Israel and being Jewish on campus? Yeah. Uh, Tal, you covered a lot of important points there. Um, before I get to your question, I just want to respond to some things in, in the, to add to some things that you said in the wind up. Um, in some ways, you know, it is true. There are things that I probably would not say in a, in a discussion post for a class, for example, um, or which, I mean, I, I've seen this in my classes, professors, you know, feel scared to say certain things which are not offensive, uh, but things that they fear will be misinterpreted that will somehow lead to them being canceled or something like that. And I think that is 
very dangerous um, and a manifestation of the exact kind of liberalism that you have described. Um, and the other thing I want to add back on the point of jamming facts into narratives. I think another important example for your listeners here is last semester, um, we were having elections for the Yale College Council, which is our student government. And uh, there was a recording of one of the people who was running for a student government position um, talking about uh, the Slifka Center, our Hillel, and how essentially how unfair it is that we have so many resources and that it's evidence of our privilege. And one person in this recording said, and look, they're so rich that they even have security guards. And and that, I think, that just blew me away because it it shows you the depth of the misperception. here. There's no recognition among many people on campus that, oh, Jews might genuinely be unsafe. The fact that they have security guards must be evidence of, you know, our our pre-formed ideology that Jews are privileged rich people. So they get security guards because they have the money to, and, and you know, they, they just want to be extra safe. It's not like there's an actual threat against them. Of course, there's an actual threat against Jews. Uh, so I just wanted to add that point. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I usually try, I usually try not to interrupt uh, guests when they're, when they're speaking, but I got to let out a big wow, because that is such a shocking statement. And, 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 it's just loaded with misconceptions and and really dangerous dangerous misconceptions that are seem, appear to be fueled by stereotypes. Yes, but exactly. please continue. No, that, that's exactly it, Tyler. Um, and so to respond to your actual question about where do I and where do we go from here regarding Israel, I've I've said this before, and I really think it's the answer. We need to have in-person, face-to-face dialogues and, and conversation. And we're actually fairly lucky at Yale because compared to other peer institutions, there's actually, at least prior to 10-7, um, a very strong tradition and community of interfaith bonds and friendships, especially between Jews and Muslims. So my hope is that that can serve as the foundation for the type of conversations that need to happen here um, around Israel and, um, and Palestine. Um, in particular. And I also think one, one thing that I've observed in, in the, the two weeks since 10-7 is the extraordinary way in which the Jewish community has come together across denominational, political, and all other lines. Um, and I, I hope that will continue. I don't know if it will. Um, but I think if we're talking about, you know, how do we make Jewish students feel safe and how do we create spaces for pro-Israel students and pro-Israel advocacy, strengthening that community is is paramount. How about... Uh, signs of of Judaism, signs of being pro-Israel, supportive of Israel. Do you, would you feel comfortable if I gifted you a shirt with the Israeli flag on it? And I said, hey, a wonderful having you on Search for Das. This is a thank you um, from from me um, to you. Um, I'd love to see you wear it on Monday in class. Would you feel comfortable wearing it? Yes, this is actually not a theoretical question for me, Tyler. I have a, a great T-shirt that says in giant letters, Yale Friends of Israel with a bulldog raising and waving an Israeli flag. Um, and I will say that oftentimes I, I don't feel comfortable wearing it. And it's not just out of discomfort. It's actually, I mean, as I said, there have been no physical attacks on my campus. But I, I do worry about my safety wearing a, a shirt like that. Um, and, and so I... I don't 
I'm ashamed to say it. I, I don't usually wear it. Um, even wearing a kippah. I mean, there, there are plenty of st students on campus who wear kippot and they're totally fine. And I, I wear a kippah on campus sometimes um, as a manifestation of Jewish pride. Um, but I think people, as a result of the issues that we talked about before, they do make um, inappropriate and incorrect assumptions about people based on the fact that they are identifiably Jewish. What are some of those uh, um, assumptions? I think they say, oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I think they say, oh, that person must be an oppressor. That person must be a privileged oppressor. Wow. Well, I, I think it's uh, having been a, a decade or so out of uh, being an undergrad or more than a decade and in, in, uh, close to a decade out of uh, being in grad school. Uh, I think it's, I feel it and I, I imagine most people feel where you just kind of project how things were when you were on campus, that it's probably the same or um, maybe slightly different, but it couldn't change that much. How, um, can you give us a little bit better understanding of, you mentioned about how you've seen professors express concern or discomfort about saying something because they think it might come off as uh, as offensive. Help us better understand what classes are like and how that might um, shape actual classroom discussion. For sure. Um, and before I do, I just want to make the point, Tyler, that the, the things I'm describing, there are certainly a fair number of students who, who think that way, but there's also a significant number of students, perhaps even a silent majority, keyword silent, um, that do not think that way and that are actually quite reasonable. Um, but they are not the loudest or the dominant voices. And so, so that's part of the problem. Going to your question about classes. Um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, I've seen it in, um, some of my economics classes and cognitive science classes, um, findings about, for example, um, we looked at some research in our cognitive science class on differences in female and male cranium sizes. Um, and we looked at some data in some of my, uh, game theory classes about, um, to the extent to which people choose to live near people who resemble them or identify with them or who look like them um, in some way. And even though we were looking at scientific data in both of these cases, I I had the overwhelming sense, which I'm sure all of my classmates would share, um, and that actually the professors acknowledged in some cases that they were walking on tinderhooks and really could not analyze the results or like ask the questions about the these scientific results um, that they wanted to ask because of fear of how it could be misinterpreted. Um, and none of these professors was about to make any kind of offensive or sexist or racist claim, but they were so worried um, that their words could be taken out of context or misinterpreted in some way that they weren't, I think, able to facilitate as robust a discussion about this data as they should have and could have. Are you, given that dynamic and the some of the other um, elements to the academic life we've touched on. I, like what quality uh, of education would you say you're receiving right now? Um, oh, I would say it. Sorry. Go, go, go ahead. No, I would say it is still extremely high. Um, and, and I do think, you know, there are spaces on campus 
where you still have free thought and dialogue. You just have to look for them. Um, and I think in seminars, people feel somewhat more comfortable saying what they truly and genuinely think without fear of uh, it being misinterpreted or or recorded or taken out of context. Um, so, so the campus, the campus spaces do exist where you can have truly liberal discussion, um, but they're, I'd say, probably fewer and far between than they used to be. For example, during your time there. Well, I think it's a good moment or point to pivot. I'd love to uh, think about your your Jewish journey. Uh, the, the the question I wanted to ask you about this, and I the the way I want to phrase it is the following. It seems like it's kind of a burden being being Jewish on at Yale right now. Why? I I, I can see one person saying, "Why don't you give it up?" Kind of just seems like uh, like a hassle. Uh, what what does being Jewish mean to you, and why aren't you just kind of leaving it the, by the wayside while well, it's kind of causing all of this angst? My Judaism is perhaps I think the uh, the greatest gift I have been given, and I see my Jewish identity as as um you know th this this extremely rich intellectual and cultural tradition this roadmap for navigating life um to which i am an heir and I, I i take such strength from the the resilience and the lengthy history of our people and and the success we've had the way we've overcome repeated crises and persecution and i i think that all that knowledge and that history and that culture grounds me so much and gives me so much hope and motivation and courage and faith uh, that I, even if I wanted to, I could never give it up, um, regardless of how difficult it is to be a Jew, because it, it it's intrinsic to me. It is who I am. How do you engage with it? How does it manifest day to day? Yeah, so I try to be a regular attendee at Friday night services and and Shabbat dinners. I lead the AJC Campus Global Board. I go to Jewish events and Jewish learning sessions. For me, most of my Jewish observance is centered around Slivka Center, Yale's Hillel, which is an extremely vibrant community. I'm also part of a number of different, well, a few different Jewish discussion groups um, and, and other organizations on campus that are Jewish. And so I, I really feel like my day-to-day -day life is imbued with Jewishness, and um, a lot of my friends happen to be Jewish as well. So it's certainly there. Have you uh, engaged with Israeli um, organizations, be it uh, pre-Yale or during Yale? Yes. So, so I've been to Israel five times, and I've made a lot of Israeli friends over the course of those trips. And, um, well, I mean, I could speak more depending on which kind of Israeli organizations you're thinking of, but I certainly have strong ties to the land. So of those five trips, which one, um, which one helped you understand Israel and why it's important? Well, I think truly it was none of my trips to Israel that most helped me understand that. I think really it was, my gap year, um, working at AJC as fellow to uh, former CEO David Harris. Um, it was that experience that really, and, and Leaders for Tomorrow as well, uh, AJC's Leaders for Tomorrow program, which solidified for me the importance of my Jewish identity um, and 
the importance of Israel to the Jewish people. Um, so I, I think that was probably primary for me. Also, I guess, so I did a program called the Brofman Fellowship. It's a fellowship for 26 North American Jews to study in Israel, Jewish texts and secular texts, um, along with a cohort of Israeli Jews as well. That was also a, a transformational experience for me that solidified um, my confidence in my identity as well. If that's, uh, well, I'm glad AJC has been super important for you. It's a similar impact on me. And uh, I engaged with it a bit later than you. I uh, started doing it as a, as a young professional and been involved in access and done a handful of trips, including one to the UAE uh, about uh, 14 months ago now. And it was really helped open my eyes just how much potential there was to build peace with Arab nations. It feels, um, feels kind of like a lifetime ago now, given where we're at in some of the, the demonstrations we're seeing in the Arab world, but I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that, um, given the, you know, the importance that organizations like AJC have placed on maintaining those relationships and just how there really are strong ties that transcend this, this conflict. So, um, no doubt that it's going to be important to continue to be focused on being hopeful. And, um, so I'm, I'm glad that, you know, we, we share that connection in addition to, to Yale. Um, but to return to, um, the, uh, the, you, you mentioned on the fellowship that, uh, you were on. You, you were studying text. I'm interested to know if there was, if you were engaging with a Yale student who said, you know, Abe, I'm going to level with you. I, um, I'm pretty skeptical of the Jewish people. I'm skeptical of the existence of Israel. I feel like you all, um, I'm, I'm not really sure that you're a group of people or that's a nation that I feel we're, like it's worth supporting. Like, I, I just don't have good um, feelings ab about it in general. What are some texts, uh, what are some stories that you would point them toward to help them better, better understand um, what we're truly about? Yeah, I, I mean, I would probably point them to a, a history book or a Wikipedia page or a history textbook, because I think, you know, understanding the history is essential to understanding Israel and the Jewish people. Um, or I might point them to a more, more recent popular press book, like uh, the case for Israel, for example. But um, if, we're, if we're talking about specific texts from this fellowship program in Israel, I think it would be hard to assign a single text that would help to dissuade someone of that kind of notion. Uh, but I can say that, you know, something that was particularly powerful for me during this fellowship was reading the full spectrum of Zionist and Jewish thought going back to the, the days of, of the Talmud. Um, I, I specifically remember reading the writings of Ahad Ha'am alongside the writings of Zev Jabotinsky. Both, I would argue, were Zionists who had very different conceptions of what Zionism could and would look like. And so I, mean, I think it's very hard to encapsulate what I learned in those five weeks via text into like a single reading recommendation for someone. Uh, but but that that was powerful to me, like really looking at the full scope. I mean, of course, you can't look at the full scope, but at a broad scope of um, 
all the knowledge and Jewish wisdom out there and then coming to my own conclusions. Zionist is a word that we've been hearing a lot from activists on campuses, especially. What do you, if you pulled over a Yale who was in a Free Palestine protest and you said, quick question, help me define Zionist, what do you think their definition would be? Settler, colonialist, oppressor. Wow. Wow. And what would you be your response? My response would be, I would probably say something about how Jews are indigenous to the land of Israel, because uh, that would really make many people's heads spin, um, because that's not part of their ideology, even though it's true. Uh, and I would probably say something about how Israel is not a colony, uh, both because of the fact that Jews are indigenous and because a colony requires a, I guess you could call it a mother country of sorts that is colonizing another land. That framework just does not apply to Israel. Israel is the homeland, the motherland. And as many have said, the Jews there have nowhere else to go. Um, and so that addresses the settler and the colonialist. And then for the oppressor part, I'd point them to a history book. And I'd say, you know, look at the history of Palestinian rejectionism and, um, and then come back to me and then we can talk. Well, uh, that is an incredible uh, follow-up right there. And I think it helps paint a picture of what your day-to-day -day is like on campus if, uh, if you decide to engage. And I guess sometimes you don't even have a choice. Um, you're wearing an Israel shirt, someone might confront you, you're walking through a free Palestine protest and it just kind of, um, is something you'll, you'll be, uh, pulled into. Well, I, I wanted to, uh, take us home with a, a few quick fire questions here. And the first one is your favorite place to study on campus. Oh, someone just asked me this and I didn't have a good answer. And I told myself, I see, where's my favorite place to study? Well, I, I love to study outdoors whenever I can. Um, I, and then beyond that, there are two other favorite places of mine. I like studying in the Gilmore Music Library of the Sterling Memorial Library building. So this is a room with, say, seven story ceilings. Um, and an enclosed glass roof. And so I love that. And then sometimes when I feel a real need to be productive, I go to Bass Library, which is in the basement underneath the uh, the green or across campus is what we call it. And it's, you know, if you really need to hunker down, if I really need to hunker down, that's where I go. The, the music library in Sterling you mentioned was yes. under construction or they were renovating it while I was on campus. Um, and uh, you were able to walk through, so I was able to see the incredible ceiling. And I thought, oh, I'd love, love to one day uh, be in there. So um, I can understand why you've chosen it. Next, uh, next question is the best class you've taken so far. Mm. That's a really tough one. I don't think I could pick a single class. Um, I'm going through my what did I take last semester uh yeah I, I think um 
I mean, in the classes I've taken on cognitive science have been extraordinary. Um, oh, and I'm taking a class right now, which I really love. It's called Biomedical Futures and Michael Crichton's Monsters. Michael Crichton is the guy who wrote Jurassic Park. And uh, it's a class about using history and the history of science policy and sci-fi to figure out the ethical issues of where we're going with science and bioethics and medicine. And, and as someone who is interested in science policy and public health, it has been an amazing class with an amazing professor. Wow. That sounds incredible. And it, Michael, fun Michael Crichton fact, he wrote a essay on love. It's called Love Is, and he published it on Valentine's Day in 1988. And it is a incredible description of the powerful force that is love. So I, I highly recommend you, uh, you read that, especially since you're in that class. Yeah, I definitely will. All right. Next, next Pepe's Sally's or modern <laughs> Pepe's easily Pepe's. And I'm sorry to say this on a podcast where I'm talking about my Judaism, but Pepe's clam pizza <laughs> all the way. Oh, that's great. Uh, a nice little plug here. Yale Club of South Florida is hosting a Harvard-Yale watch party at the Frank Pepe's Pizza location in, in Florida, in South Florida. They're opening up the whole restaurant to host Yaleys and uh, Harvard grads for, uh, wow. for the watch party on November 18th of the Harvard-Yale game. So um, That's amazing. Um, also a plug for, for if there's any Harvard or Yale alumni on here who are coming to the Harvard-Yale game. Uh, Fiddler on the Roof is going to be performed the Thursday and Saturday night of that weekend. So you should get your tickets. I'm not in it. Unfortunately, I'm not uh, theatrically talented enough to make it into a Yale production of <laughs> Fiddler on the Roof, but I plan to go see it. And I think it's a great way to manifest Jewish pride. Wow. That, wonderful. I'm glad that's happening. All right. Second to last one. What was your Torah portion? My Torah. So um, my Torah portion was Vayikra. Um, but I was, I'm, it was Rosh Hodesh Nisan, um, which for those who are Torah Parsha gurus meant that, means that there were um, three Torah portions actually to read. So it wasn't just Vayikra, but it was also, so it was Vayikra. Then there was a Torah portion because it was Rosh Hodesh, the first Shabbat of the month. And then there was another Torah portion because Nisan is actually the first month on the Jewish monthly calendar. So even though Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year, the months start and usually around mid-March with this month called Nisan. So you read another third Torah portion for that. Um, yeah, so that was my Torah portion. Um, final question. What do you plan on doing after graduation? I'm working on figuring that out as we speak, Tyler. Um, I hope to pursue a career in, in public service of some kind. I hope to attend graduate school, likely law school, perhaps also seeking an MPH, a master's in public health at some point. And um, I hope to do something in policy, science policy, public health policy that can have a real impact on um, the systems that shape people's lives. Excellent. Well, I know whatever you choose, you will excel at. And I am so grateful you joined Search for DOS. Thank you for taking the time, especially in the midst of a very busy semester and in, in possibly challenging time to be um, a Jew anywhere, but uh, especially on a uh, U.S. campus. So thank you so much for 
doing what you're doing to advocate for Israel and the Jewish people. And uh, look forward to seeing you on campus at some point. Yes, me too, Tyler. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having me. Um, this has been great, and I really appreciate your support. Oh, Davino, 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 Davino,